This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's a pleasure to be with you again on this Saturday morning for what is our 16th consecutive show dealing with the coronavirus. We're going to switch things up a little bit today in terms of our format. Uh, My guest today in the second half of the program will be Dr. Peter Hotez. Dr. Hotez is an infectious disease specialist of world renown. Uh, He is at the Baylor School of Medicine, and he is often seen on television um, and sought after as an expert. He's the dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor. And he is from Hartford and has generously agreed to call into the program. So in the second half of the program, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Hotez. People have emailed me questions during the week for him, so we're not going to take live questions in the second half of the program. We will take your live questions in the next segment, so in the 11.15 to 11.30 segment, um, so everyone is aware of what we're doing. Now, I get a lot of questions, and, and it's interesting because we're all getting an education in public health, uh, virology, statistics. Maybe it's an education we never really wanted, but it's here. And everybody's learning quite a bit. And I know that because a lot of the emails are people who come up with ideas as to what can I do to change things. There are a lot of people, you don't have to be an MD, PhD to be sitting home thinking about the problem and possible practical solutions to how to get things going. So I really appreciate uh, the emails and the thought. And, And those emails veer away from divisive politics. We're not talking politics here, okay? This is affecting everyone equally. And when people start getting into the politics of if you take a stand on wearing a mask, you must be a liberal, uh, that's ridiculous. So we need to just keep the conversation going on this program. The statistics continue to be staggering. Here in Connecticut, we've had 39,640 confirmed cases of COVID-19, 3,637 deaths. But the big number that we're all focusing on is in the United States, we have over 96,000 deaths. That's 96,000 deaths from the time of our first death in February. So in a relatively short period of time, 96,370 Americans are dead. And over 1.6 million Americans have contracted the virus, and that has been proven to have contracted the virus. So those staggering statistics are our motivation. It's our motivation on this program. It's our motivation to try and help each other solve the problem. Now, one of the things we're focused on this past week has been opening up America. And let's discuss it a little bit. When you look at the range of opening up America, there's a range to everything. There's full isolation. 
So, for example, if we all just locked ourselves in our houses when this happened, okay, no one left. If you're in the hospital staff, no one went outside. You were in an isolated environment. The virus would be gone because then the virus would have nowhere to live. It would not have a host. Now, we all know that, practically speaking, it can't be done. It's been attempted. Um, they attempted that and are doing that in India because they don't have the ability to test on a large scale. They have 1.3 billion people. So they've had their residents just lock themselves in their homes for a period of three weeks with the hope that they could have an effect on this. The other extreme is no isolation. Okay, so no lockdown. And probably the poster child for that has been the country of Sweden. So Sweden, and a lot of people have pointed to Sweden, look at Sweden. So Sweden has become the poster child for uh, no lockdown. They've kept their bars, restaurants, salons, gyms, and schools open. Kept their economy going. And their hope was to achieve herd immunity, meaning that... Um, as some politicians in this country said, let's just let it run through the population. So essentially, that's what they did in Sweden with the hope of getting to 70 to 90 percent of their population to be immunized passively by contracting the virus. So and, and still, there's a question of the effectiveness of herd immunity from the virus. We're still not sure that that's going to give you an absolute immunity, but. So initially, their deaths were very similar to other Nordic neighbors that had closed their economies. So people got excited about that. Currently, Sweden has the highest number of deaths per million people in all of Europe. So sadly, their experiment, their strategy has clearly failed by their own admission. 8.71 per million people in Sweden have died compared to the United States where our rate is 4.5 million 4.59 million 4.59 deaths per million so we're about half of the deaths in Sweden when you look at that rate when you look at Norway their closest Nordic neighbor they have a a lesser amount their amount is lower by about tenfold. So you might say, well, okay, they paid the price. They've had a lot of deaths, but have they reached herd immunity? And the answer is clearly no. When they looked at the population to see who had antibodies, they only had 7.3%. Remember, you have to get to between 70 and 90%. Comparably speaking, Spain, who did lock down the country, has 5%. So they have almost as much. So your problem there will say, well, at least they kept their economy open. Well, they did. But when you look at the deaths and the number of people who have contracted the virus in Sweden and the number of people who have to care for those people who are sick, it has also paralyzed their economy because people can't come to work. So it's an important lesson for us to learn. They took a different strategy. It didn't work.
and I'm happy we didn't take that strategy here for the time being. Now, the next thing that comes up that's pretty confusing is, should churches open? Full disclosure, I go to church, okay? I'm a Roman Catholic. I go to church every Sunday. I haven't been going to church, obviously, because it's been closed. So the question is, when will the churches open and will it be safe? We keep getting confusing signals, right? Dr. Burks addressed this yesterday, and she said, well, I think it's safe because if someone is ill, they won't go to church. But at the same time, she said, up to 40% of people are asymptomatic carriers. They're people who would go to church because they don't have symptoms and are spreading the virus. So, again, confusing, contradictory statements coming from a doctor who is in a leadership role. And let's think about it. I mean, when I go to church and I look around, there are a lot of people there who are over the age of 60. So again, we have vulnerable populations in a closed environment. Now you might say, well, we're only going to put one person per pew and space out the pews. Uh, I think it's a pretty risky thing, and that's my opinion. But I could see that we need to move slowly on how we're reopening the country. I think the data and the statistics tell us that, and it's important. The last thing I want to mention in this segment is, is masks. Wearing a mask, if two people wear a mask and they're together, there's nowhere for that virus to go, okay? Because you're protecting somebody by wearing a mask and they're protecting you. The virus, again, needs a host to live. So wearing a mask is really a sign of bravery and consideration for others around you. Uh, Dr. Atul Gawande just gave an interview in which he talked about if 60% of the people wore a mask outside 60% of the time, there would be a tremendous drop in the spread of this virus. And that's important for us to all know because we can all make a difference. Everybody listening to this program can affect the health of others by wearing a mask. I can't emphasize that enough. This day in medicine, May 23rd, 1926, Dr. John Hilton Knowles was born. And the reason he's interesting is because he was the youngest director of the Massachusetts General Hospital, and he was an outspoken critic of unnecessary surgery, high fees for surgery, and he advocated for preventive medicine and national health insurance, something we're still talking about today, right? A single payer, making sure everybody has some basic care. And he was born in 1926 on this day. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to be back to take questions from all of you. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also reach me at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And in this segment, we are opening the lines up for questions. Uh, 860-522-9842 and 
800-848-9842. And as I mentioned in the second half of the program, we are not going to be taking live questions, and we want to spend time with our guest, Dr. Peter Hotez, who will be calling in. Uh, in the past week, uh, last week, you might remember, uh, someone called in, and we had uh, Jack from Glastonbury called in, and actually I invited him to send me references on uh, hydrochloroquine, and it was great to hear from him. Uh, I went through the references, and it's amazing because everything has changed. I mean, both Jack and I believe that we need to get a treatment if we're going to play offense here. Remember, we have defense and offense. Identify, isolate, trace. That's your defense. Offense, treatment, vaccine. So we have to try a lot of different things. Um, he uh, really believed in the hydrochloroquine combination therapy, and there are several studies ongoing. The article published this week in Lancet talked about, uh, which looked at 15,000 people's records where they got hydroxychloroquine and an antibiotic, it showed an increased risk of death. Uh, 8% of those people developed arrhythmias, and 0.3% uh, of those who did got the placebo did not develop arrhythmias uh, or death. So in that study, which was retrospective, not a controlled study, as we've talked about here on this program that are important, we need to uh, really look at the science. So right now, it's not looking good for hydroxychloroquine, but again, there are different combinations. So does the addition of zinc make a difference or not? And that's the study going on at St. Francis Hospital in Long Island. Uh, and uh, Jack brought that to my attention. The other thing is on May 11th, there was a report out of France um, supporting the use of hydroxychloroquine. That study has now been retracted by the author. The author self-published. He put it out on the Internet before it was peer-reviewed. And after peer review, it became evident that he was mistaken in several of his premises. And the author in France uh, did uh, withdraw that. Uh, so hydroxychloroquine, still a challenge. Uh, and But again, the quest goes on. Uh, we have Mary from Wethersfield has a question. Mary, you're on. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Hi. Hello. Do you have a question? Yes. My question oh, good, good, is, good. Yeah. Hi. Good morning. Good my morning. question is, if you've been exposed to the coronavirus, which is the case in my mother's case, and it's been four weeks since she tested positive, how long is she contagious for? Okay. Uh, great question, Mary. So what we believe is that after you contract the virus, you may still be shedding virus uh, for up to two weeks. And that's why they usually say nine days, but we've been working off of two weeks. So after two weeks of uh, her being quarantined, she should not be shedding the virus. And uh, that that's important to note. The thing we worry about most in the case of your mother is who was she exposed to for five days before she got symptoms or some people are saying even longer before she got symptoms because that's when she would be most contagious. So now we're screening people for temperature and other symptoms and various questionnaires. Uh, but by that, to by that 
logic, the horse is already out of the barn. So we need to get on this earlier, and that's why we need to practice social distancing and isolating ourselves from large groups. So, Mary, thank you for that question. Uh, the next issue with res regard to treatment uh, was some of the measures I mentioned uh, last week. Uh, we talked about hydroxychloroquine, but we also talked about uh, remdesivir and the combination of triple drug treatment, ritonavir and uh, lopinavir. A study published this week in the New England Journal of Medicine looked at 199 patients, and this was a controlled double-blind study, and showed the combination of lopinavir and ritinavir, two antiviral drugs, did not impact the clinical improvement of patients who had severe coronavirus symptoms. So the COVID-19 patients, so that combination in and of itself did not work in the first study done. Uh, that doesn't mean it will not work. It means that we need to move on, maybe possibly adding things to those, but we're learning something all the time about potential treatments and about ways that we can get back on playing offense. Now, a very interesting question I had was from a listener who uh, is an at, in the at-risk population from age and other problems. His son had the coronavirus and thankfully recovered and has antibodies. He's also the same blood type as the person who sent me the email. And his question was that I currently do not have the virus, but I would like to go visit my grandchildren. He desperately wants to go visit his grandchildren, as do I, and hug them. But he knows it's not the right thing to do. So his question was, can I, be, can I receive a transfusion of my son's antibodies now, even though I don't have the virus? And would that give me a sufficient amount of protection so that I can go visit my grandchildren? It's a great question because we're talking about convalescent plasma. So someone who's recovered has the antibodies. We have been using this for treatment. We are treating people who have the virus. We don't know how long those antibodies last in the system. So they may only be there for a short period of time. And the reason they help people who are infected and ill is because you want to get them kind of over the hump to the other side of things to where they produce their own antibodies. So those passive antibodies, as we call them, that you would get from a donor will eventually go away. But if you had the virus, you will produce your own antibodies. So in this case, it wouldn't work for our listener because he's receiving the antibodies from his son, but they may be very short-lived or may be ineffective. And he does not have the means for producing his own antibodies because he was not subjected to the virus itself. So, but again, that's one of those great thoughts. I mean, that, it was a question that I didn't actually think about uh, in, in the sense of how can we get further protection and how can people, how could we protect ourselves and get back to things? With that, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Peter Hotez. 
and we have many questions for him regarding how we get back on offense. How does how do we develop a vaccine? How long is it going to take? When are we going to be out of this mess? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And in this half hour of the program, I am honored to have as my guest, Dr. Peter Hotez. Dr. Hotez is an MD, PhD. He is dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and professor of the departments of pediatrics, molecular virology, and microbiology. He's co-head of the section of pediatric tropical medicine, all at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Uh, I could go on and on about uh, all of his credentials, uh, but suffice it to say he is an internationally respected infectious disease specialist. Many of you have seen him on TV. And among his list of credits, he is a product of Hartford, Connecticut. Dr. Hotez, welcome to the show. Thank you. Forgot to also mention that I used to listen to Bob Steele in the morning on WTIC when my dad would drive me to school. Well, we were hoping for that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Great to be on. Thank you. Thank you for uh, taking time. But let's get down to it. Uh, You know, on this program, we've divided things up into defense and offense. And and lately with uh, identification, isolation, contact tracing, we're, we're kind of playing defense. And we're looking to folks like you to help us get on the offense, which would be treatment and vaccines. But I want to start by, uh, has our defense helped? Has identification, isolation, and contact tracing, has it made a difference? Well, you know, when you don't have a vaccine and you've got such a highly transmissible virus, it's like doing this with one hand tied behind your back. So it's not optimal. I do think there are ways, though, that we can... You know, calling it defense is not a bad not a bad metaphor, but you know, I think there are ways that we can optimize that. You know, I think we, you know, we our capacity for contact tracing and testing has been modest. I think that could be ramped up, especially in the workplace. But also, I think we could do a lot more in the area of syndromic surveillance. I mean, looking look at what the Australians have done with some of the app-based technologies. You know, we've got such amazing engineering uh, capacity in the U.S. Uh, you know, looking at some of the systems like Kinsa and Google and Apple and really uh, ramping that up. I, you know, we still seem to be focusing on low-tech solutions, which are important, and you have to do that. But I think there's a lot more. We could still um, do a lot more room to, to advance things along using some of the computer-based uh, technologies and app-based technologies than we're using right now. When, as we start moving through this, when was, I got to ask you, when was the first time you knew we were in trouble? I mean, you're an infectious disease specialist. You have worked in other parts of the world with uh, epidemics and pandemics. Um, What, when did you first get a feeling, man, this is not good? Well, you know, we had, uh, one of the things that we, we, we work on neglected and emerging infections. We have a center that develops vaccines and we, recognized about a decade ago that coronaviruses were going to be really important and that SARS was not going to be the last one. And we actually predicted we're going to see repeated rounds of coronavirus, serious coronavirus infections. And sure enough, then we had MERS in 2012 and we sounded the alarm again. And then this COVID-19 is the third one. So anytime we've seen 
a serious coronavirus infection emerge and cause serious pathology, we know we're in trouble because these are highly lethal infections. And then when I saw how quickly it was spreading throughout the community, that got me worried. And by January, middle of January, we knew the genetic code of the virus. We knew it was pretty similar to SARS-1. That's why we call it SARS-2. We knew it bound to the same receptor. But the scary part for me was seeing how quickly it was spreading. And I said, this is not quite the same uh, virus as SARS because uh, that one was comparatively easy to contain and only caused about 8,000 cases. So I said, this is we're going to be in it for the long haul. And I notified the National Institutes of Health that we had some vaccine candidates and we were ready to work on it. And so by the end of January, especially when we heard about the asymptomatic cases, I knew this was going to be bad news. So by the end of January, you already had an idea for working on a vaccine? That's right. That's right. And, you know, this this was pretty impressive. I mean, it was impressive after SARS-1 and back in 2003. Within a year, the scientific community had isolated the virus, knew the receptor, uh, knew uh, the genetic code of the virus and can start working on vaccine candidates uh, because of all the improvements in technology and also the reporting and preprint servers like BioArchive and MetaArchive. We actually compressed all of that within a few weeks. So within a month after the the known emergence of this virus, uh, the whole scientific community had been mobilized. It's, you know, it's going to be one of the, when, when all this is said and done, it's going to be one of the great stories told in science. Well, Will it be one of the great failures? Well, I think the failure is more of a policy failure than anything else. Right, so that's fact, what I mean. The, the fact that uh, you know nations didn't respond quickly enough, uh, the fact that you know we, we, we didn't heed the warnings. I mean, if if you look back, uh, you can actually uh, trace the entry of this virus into the United States at a much earlier time. I think the first known case, for instance, in New York was March 1. But if you look at the number of ICU admissions we've had and based on other cities, it's when we had the emergency lockdown announced in New York, I think it was on March 22nd. If you backtrack, it probably means the first case of COVID-19 came in from Europe around the first week of February, maybe the end of January. So the fact that we missed that for so long uh, was a policy failure in our public health infrastructure. Going forward in developing a vaccine, since we're on the topic, what what are the challenges in general to develop a vaccine and specifically for COVID-19? Well, actually, this one is not that difficult in, in many ways. Uh, Carl Zimmer from the New York Times calls of the COVID-19 virus, the SARS coronavirus, to a clumsy virus. That's the term he uses. And I think he's right. It's It doesn't have a lot of stealth properties like HIV or other viruses. It has a spike protein that it uses to bind to the receptor, and you create an immune response against the spike protein, you'll get a vaccine. And we have lots of different ways to do that. Uh, we're using a recombinant protein approach, but you could use DNA viruses, RNA viruses, and we've heard about uh, all of these uh, different constructs, adenoviruses. So the technical feat of making a vaccine is not very complicated. The problem is trying to accelerate a vaccine in, in the middle of a pandemic is not something we have a lot of experience with because it takes time 
to show, to, con- to convince yourself that the vaccine is actually working in people as well as it does in experimental animals, and it's safe. And so we have to be really pristine uh, about, about our safety because these are pharmaceuticals that are basically injected into well people to prevent from getting sick. So we have a very low tolerance for uh, safety problems, uh, and, and that's what takes time. So a lot of these vaccines are now moving into phase three clinical trials starting in the starting in later in the summer and the fall. And it'll take at least a year to accumulate enough data to showing that these vaccines actually work and they're safe. And that's and even that would be a world record if we had something by the end of twenty twenty one. So so I I think what you're saying is these uh aspirations of having an effective vaccine by the end of this year, by the end of 2020 or January 2021, do not seem likely. I don't see a path by which that happens. I, I think what I think a lot of the miscommunication, and that's what it is, is the fact that the White House sees this in, sees this in terms of manufacturing. So they think of vaccines the same way that they think of ventilators or diagnostic tests, and they see this as a first and foremost a manufacturing problem, and that's why uh, a lot of these vaccines we're going to scale up and manufacture, and we use the term at risk, meaning there's a good likelihood that many of these vaccines won't pan out or have to throw them away. But just having the vaccine manufactured about an important step is not the full pieces. It's the full pieces showing it's safe and effective, and that's going to take a longer period of time than the actual manufacture. Are we uh, getting too excited about the idea that several of the vaccines, I think two of them, have produced neutralizing antibodies? I mean, is that cause for great excitement in terms of progress here, or is that something expected or more routine? Well, it's funny you ask. I'm writing about this now for a for a journal, uh, for a scientific journal. I mean, it's yes, producing neutralizing antibodies is really important. It's a special type of antibody that binds to the virus and prevents it from binding to our, from attaching to our tissues. But it's also the amount of neutralizing antibody. We want to see a level of neutralizing antibody that's at least or probably greater than the amount that people will get if they experience the actual infection. And so far, most of the vaccines we've seen have not done that. Uh, so it's not just a question of whether plus or minus, whether they develop neutralizing antibody. It's lots of neutralizing antibody. And we haven't seen that so far with a lot of vaccines. So we still have a way to, ways to go. Is everybody playing nicely with this? And I hope they are. And, and from that, I mean internationally. Uh, you know, we hear all these kinds, you know, there's, I always say that, when you mix politics and science, you get a mess on your hands. But, um, you know, people attacking WHO, CDC. Um, we have uh, progress being made at Oxford um, here in the United States and other countries. Um, below the politics of it, at a scientific level, is everybody on the same page? No, I don't think so. Um, and that's, that's been a problem. And it's not just the international problem. It's even here within the United States. You have uh, the biotechs and pharma companies being a, being somewhat irresponsible in their press releases, uh, giving unrealistic timelines, saying we're going to have a vaccine within weeks or months, or we can make it in days. And, you know, they're sending out uh, memos to their shareholders, which are getting picked up by the media, 
and it's causing a lot of confusion. I mean, you, we heard what happened with Moderna this week, where they sent out, which is one has one of the horses in the race, and they sent out this press release and announcement, but no data, no, and nothing the scientific community could look at. So it created a lot of confusion because some of us thought the way the wording was that the vaccine actually was not working, and others thought it was a cause for celebration. So that that's that's been happening. And then you have uh, the White House using these unfortunate metaphors like Operation Warp Speed. And I call it unfortunate because you know, we have a very aggressive anti-vaccine lobby out there. And their central tenets are, one, that vaccines cause autism. And I've spent a good part of my life refuting that because I have a daughter with autism and wrote a book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. But also they claim that vaccines are rushed, not adequately tested for safety. And there's this cozy relationship. Uh, and conflicts of interest between pharma and the U.S. government. So all of the things that are happening right now are playing right into their hands and really uh, re-energizing the anti-vaccine movement, which is tragic. And then you have the problem of our relationship with China, and China is also working to develop vaccines. So that's going badly. And then there's a lot of deflection and blame on the World Health Organization, which I think is mostly undeserved. So it's a very heated political environment now, and trying to navigate through all of that just just makes things more complicated. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the anti-vaccine movement uh, here in Connecticut. At least on this program, it has been our belief clearly that vaccines have been probably the single greatest accomplishment in modern medicine when we look back at the number of lives saved. And yet we're always dealing with this. Um, it's almost like the squeaky wheel getting the grease. Uh, from the standpoint here in Connecticut, we're fighting the battle now of uh, whether or not uh, you can use a religious exemption, which we, almost all of us understand is a false exemption anyhow, since no organized religion is against the vaccines. But I, I bring up the point because when we get a vaccine, and it is proven effective. Are we going to hear from people that they don't want it? That, in fact, that's what's already happening. Um, you know, because of all the mis-messaging from the White House and the irresponsible behavior from the pharma companies and the biotechs, what we've got now are surveys. And Reuters just reported this uh, this week, and I was was quoted in the piece saying that about a quarter of Americans will not take this vaccine, even if it's even even if they're made available. And that number may grow if this mismessaging continues and the anti-vaccine movement becomes stronger and better funded as it's been for the last couple of years. So we may reach a point where even if vaccines are available, uh, the, the idea of the vaccine it has two effects. One is it prevents you from getting sick, but the other you hope it could actually cause enough herd immunity to interrupt transmission. And now I'm, and I had an article about this this week saying I'm now worried we're not going to be able to achieve herd immunity with our vaccines because so many people are going to opt out. So something I never would have predicted a couple of months ago, unfortunately, that seems now to be happening. When we talk about herd immunity, do you have an idea of what it would take to get herd immunity for this virus? I know it varies. Uh, measles is, what, 90%. Uh, Polio is uh, much lower. Um, yeah. What do you think about this virus? What would it take to get to herd immunity? So we're working out with a vaccine modeling group at City University of New York, and we're hoping to have those numbers pretty soon. 
Uh, and it really will depend on how effective the vaccines are. But it's going to be a pretty high percentage. It may not be as high as measles, which is the most transmissible agent known, which requires 90, 95% vaccine uptakes. But it's going to be pretty high. And it's going to be a high bar in light of the fact that we've enabled uh, the anti-vaccine movement to go to become so powerful. And it's a lot about leadership and not having that leadership in the state of Connecticut to even allow some of the stuff that went on in the state capitol earlier this year. When we go uh, back a little bit and looking at some of the uh, problems with rushing a vaccine, uh, first of all, I have great admiration for people who have volunteered to try these vaccines um, because there's a tremendous downside for them. Can you uh, talk a little bit about, you know, why we can't rush this? Well, we can't rush it for the simple reason that um, it takes time to show that the vaccines work and they're both safe. And if either of those two don't happen with vaccines after the release, the whole vaccine program can become discredited. And we've seen things go badly. This happened with the vaccine for dengue in the Philippines, where it got a bad reputation and actually spilled over into the whole national vaccine program. Some kids stopped getting immunized against measles, and that resulted in thousands of deaths. So we still have to vaccinate, use our other vaccines. As it is, uh, the anti-vaccine lobby is grown so strong that we've had the return of measles last year. We've had a terrible uptake of the uh, uh, cervical cancer vaccine, the HPV vaccine for cervical cancer and other cancers. And um, so if there are problems with this one, it's not just going to be a matter of Americans not taking distrusting COVID vaccines. They'll distrust all vaccines. And we've seen that play out before, and we, we just can't afford that. In the United States, we, we have the finances to start moving things along and things like that. But uh, I do a lot of work in Haiti uh, at, uh, twice a year. I'm down there working at a mission, and, and they're virtually overrun right now. They don't, even have, they don't have the ability to even test, but the hospital where I work is absolutely overrun, not just from the patients, but, uh, the, but the providers, the, the physicians and nurses. And, what did you do? I mean, you've you've had experience in working with uh, developing nations who who face this challenge. What what can they be doing? Well, one of the things we're doing is our COVID nineteen vaccines are being developed as a low cost, affordable vaccine using a technology that use that's the same as the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine that's made all over the world. It's made in India. It's made in Brazil. So the idea is. Uh, that we can have this roll out as an affordable vaccine for everyone. So that's one thing we're doing. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we can barely keep up in the, in the New York City health system uh, in terms of the hospitals and all the PPE and all, everything we've been hearing about. So I'm very worried. I mean, I, I wasn't aware about the extent of the problem in Haiti. Uh, I think that story's got to get out more. We certainly are seeing it in Brazil. Some of the cities in the northern part of Brazil, Fortaleza, Belém, Manaus, they're getting hit very hard, Guayaquil and Ecuador. And um, and the, these, those health systems struggle even under the best of circumstances. And I can only imagine what it must be like. So the fact that you're telling me now where COVID has emerged in Haiti, which should come as no surprise, it's, it's 
very worrisome because, you know, and also it's, it's not only just the health system. How do you, you know, practice social distancing in the crowded slums of Port-au-Prince or some of these other uh, uh, poor cities in the Americas? Well, it, it's, it's really going to be uh, a devastating situation, I'm afraid. You know, we talked about it a little bit earlier in the show about Sweden, where um, they decided to uh, not have a lockdown. And it looks like that was a bad strategy. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, we know what happens. And I'm worried now in the U.S. Uh, people are, are tired of, of social distancing. They they want to get their lives back. They want to go back to restaurants and, and the workplace. And I understand that. But I'm worried we don't have the public health infrastructure that's commensurate with what we need to sustain the economy. So I'm looking at some of the models coming out of Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania, and out of the University of Washington, and some are predicting a pretty steep, sharp increase again as we head into later in the summer and the fall. And this is going to have a destabilizing effect at multiple levels, including the fact that it's going to be happening in the weeks right before the 2020 presidential election. So then there's going to be drop declines in poll numbers. You're going to see some of our elected leaders lashing out, deflecting, blaming the scientists potentially. I see the fall as a time of great political foment and instability in this country. In closing, Dr. Hotez, what would you like us to know what's the message for the people of Connecticut who are listening today uh, from your standpoint as as a scientist? I, I think the most important is to recognize we've just been through version 1.0, uh, the first wave, and the models show another major wave coming in the winter, in January, February, and because of, unless we can figure out a way to implement that substantive level of public health infrastructure with the tracing and the syndromic surveillance and the testing and and creating models for every city and, and the communication plan, we could easily experience a, a second, an intermediate wave later in the summer and the fall. And we've got to be smart about it. And we have to have good leadership that's not too ideologically driven, that's very pragmatic and can think about how we're going to work our way through this because the vaccine probably won't be ready till next year at the earliest, and even then that'll be a, re- a record. Dr. Hotez, thank you. Thank you for your time today, and more importantly, thank you for everything you do, uh, and uh, thank you for remembering your roots here in Hartford. Thanks so much. I've been invited to give the Milton Markowitz Lecture at Connecticut Children's Medical Center uh, via Zoom uh, next week, so I'm looking forward to that. So it's uh, I always love keeping keeping my links to my beloved Hartford. That's great. Thank you again. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Peter Hotez. I want to thank him for his uh, time today. I want to thank uh, Joel from Simsbury, who made the connection with Dr. Peter Hotez uh, to get him on the air. Uh, Thanks to uh, Mike Olko, who's been on the board today. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. We'll be back next week. We're going to be talking about inequities in health um, with Dr. Cato Lorenzen from the University of Connecticut. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by wearing a mask. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. 
This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.